When life throws you a curveball, how are you going to handle adversity? Welcome to the Fearless Mindset Podcast, where you're about to go on a journey as I interview security, business, and entertainment leaders on what it takes to stay fearless. I'm your host, Mark Ludlow, and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Ledlow, the fearless, the host of the Fearless Mindset Podcast. And today we have with us Brent Gleason. He's a Navy SEAL, author of two books. Embrace the Suck is coming out tomorrow. And he also authored the book Taking Point. And he's going to join us and share with us his business expertise and what he's been up to and what the journey looked like writing that book. So Brent, Glad to have you with us and excited to have you. And to be honest with you, I haven't been in a studio in like three months because I've been working in Portland on a corporate security <laughs> job. So I got these lights in my face and I'm like, okay, this is not normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to be here, brother. And thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So I want to ask you, what was the pivotal moment, the trigger pull for you to write Embrace the Suck? What was that moment? Because you wrote Taking Point was a phenomenal business organizational book. And what was the trigger that made you write the other one? Sure. It, it actually kind of does stem from that as part of that journey. You know, I wrote Taking Point as um, obviously a, a catalyst and a foundation to build a curriculum and a, a, um, a business around business transformation, consulting, leadership, uh, culture transformation, employee engagement strategies, essentially a more modern take on a, a change management book. And um, and then build a company around that, which is this is my third company. I, I sold my last one in 2016. And Taking Point Leadership is a you know, essentially a leadership and organizational development consulting firm. But you know, one thing you realize is when you go into an organization to help uh, enhance the leadership and management capability from the top down, bottom up, across the organization to really redefine the culture and associate the culture the rituals, the behaviors, the actions necessary to achieve a desired outcome, really it comes back to behaviors and mindsets and the way people interact with one another, the way they interact with uh, their customers and their clients and uh, how they really emotionally connect to the mission narrative of the organization. And you can't enhance the performance of a team, of course, without enhancing the performance of the individuals on the team. So I started thinking, well, maybe there's an opportunity here to write more of a personal transformation book. Technically, the book falls into that you know self-help, self-improvement genre. So I said maybe I should probably do some you know some research. I'd never read a self-help book before. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I don't need that, but, you know. And then I started looking, and I found some books I liked, some books you know, I, I didn't really connect with. I did find a lot of fluff out there, a lot of happy talk, and a lot of you know books that were have done very well and were very popular. But for me, I'm very uh, action-oriented. And so I didn't find anything that was a little more counterintuitive, a little more gritty, a little more in your face. And also, most importantly, gives you tools of what to actually do and accomplish to transform your life, to overcome adversity, reassess values, plan better, execute better, debrief with ourselves better so that we can be essentially in a constant state of improvement and do all these things to live a, a more purpose-driven meaningful life that give us to co- gives to causes greater than yourselves and to essentially be happier and, you know, meet and achieve more of the goals that we set. So that's, that's the sort of the passion or vision I had for this book. And admittedly, as you know, going into this project, I didn't know 2020 would suck so bad. So, <laughs> so, so selfishly, I'll say, Mark, that uh, the timing hide, is, hide, uh, hide. 
The Take timing cover. Is, the timing is pretty good. The timing is pretty good. <laughs> Take cover for COVID. Going to get you <laughs> wild. Yeah, you're right. 2020 turned out to be the nightmare of Elm Street, literally, and around the world. And you know, I I, I wrote a bunch of notes for you, but I'm going to probably go off it here and there. Something that comes to mind is um, you have all these businesses I know you consult with, and I know your book Taking Point covers hits hard on communication, integrity, integrity, and transparency, and culture. And those are the big elements that you covered in that. What are you hearing on the ground from people you uh, consult as clients? How are they getting through this crazy <laughs> nightmare in business? Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, you know, this isn't the first time, obviously, you know, the world or at least, you know, the United States in particular have been hit with this sort of life and business ambush. I, I kind of equate it back to our experiences in 2008 and beyond with the recession and the housing market imploding. Like my first company out of grad school was a home finding search engine. But <laughs> 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 basically like an early version of Zillow or Trulia. I, I raised a bunch of money. We started it like right before the housing market imploded. Um, so that was my first experience in businesses, you know, learning how to pivot on this type of battlefield, you know, and, but, over the years, honestly, just not just for my time as a SEAL, but in business, in entrepreneurship, when it comes to adversity striking, in large part, I say good, because it forces innovation, it forces creativity, it forces re- reassessing uh, the things that really matter to you or to your business or to your family or to your finances, or your faith, all of the above. And, um, you know, what we've seen with our clients and just other, you know, obviously, lessons I've learned from you know, doing research and just watching the news in general is that one of two things typically happen in this type of scenario. Uh, organizations that get it, that have you know sound, passionate leadership that can bring people together during times of adversity are going to innovate. They're going to adapt. They're going to you know, restructure, recapitalize. They're going to do things that are necessary for the business to survive and for them to um, really take care of as many people as possible within their organization. Because as leaders, obviously, it's not just about the business, it's about the people we employ and their families and their incomes. And so it really is a, a large burden of command, as we say. Um, and then, of course, there are organizations that won't be able to adapt quickly enough. I mean, many organizations have been forced down this path of digital innovation, which is actually great. Uh, but change, like I talked a lot about in the first book, this type of change takes most organizations couple years to enact if they even fully get to where they want to be because of a lack of buy-in or a lack of accountability, whereas just to survive in this environment, much less thrive, which some are and will do, um, you know, people have had to, we've had some clients that in our global organizations, they had to transition, as you, as you know, to completely virtual work within a week and a half. Wow. <laughs> so as you can imagine, that, that creates a, a different complexity in leadership, uh, a new layer of complexity when it comes to employee engagement strategies, uh, because employee engagement in, in a well-run organization is still only like actively engaged employees. It's still only about a third of the employee base, the rest being sort of, you know, disengaged or actively disengaged. And that's just in a normal, complex, fast-paced world of business. Now layering in the complexity of COVID, um, so we've been working a lot with our clients on engagement strategies, leading and managing remote teams, work from home best practices, and also now trying to shift the culture towards 
what will be wrapped in a lot of permanency for organizations, think re rethinking their workspace needs, their workforce needs, and how they utilize technology to not just engage internally, but to engage externally with their employees. So, but, you know, organizations who are getting it, are getting it right, and they're going to come out of this stronger and possibly more scalable than they were before. Right. Now, here's a question a friend of mine asked me to ask you, actually, she's a business owner, and she wanted me to uh, ask, what are your thoughts about everybody's working remotely right now? All the corporations are having their employees go remotely throughout the country. Do you see, are you hearing on the ground from your clients uh, them going back to the office space anytime soon, or is this going to be a permanent thing you think in the future? None of our clients to date have discussed uh, anything that I've heard uh, around uh, a permanent going back to the office type of situation. Uh, obviously, there are certain clients, partners that we work with where they have um, at least an element of their organization that is, you know, they're critical workers. They have to be, you know, in the manufacturing plant or on site with their clients. But um, again, I think that a lot of organizations, I kind of feel bad. I, I, I came from a commercial real estate finance background before I went to the SEAL teams. <laughs> Right. I, feel bad for, I feel bad for the folks in that industry because a lot of organizations are rethinking how much workspace they actually need. If they do, you know, how are they going to utilize it? Um, people are getting used to working remotely. So a lot of leaders and organizations are thinking, well, you know, if it comes to a point where it's safe to go back or our corporate policies are going to transform, all of a sudden we're just going to be like, hey, guys, time to hardcore pivot again. We're going back to the office or people are used to this now. They've got their routine now, finally. And so um, uh, a, a radical pivot back to the way it was, I don't see that happening. And if organizations try to do that, um, it may not work all that well. <laughs> I would guess probably not. Yeah. Now, going back to your book, uh, Embrace the Suck, um, I was listening to one of your YouTube videos, and I had no idea you and David Goggins were in the bud teams together. No clue. And I was like, holy crap. Yeah, so we, uh, when I checked into, just so the listeners, uh, we, BUDS is the first six months of over, over a year training pipeline for the SEAL program. And again, it's the military, so obviously it's an acronym. It stands for Basic <laughs> Underwater Demolition right. SEAL. And right. typically, if you see things in TV, the movies, or documentary series, it's you're, you're seeing things from BUDS, possibly some from advanced training, which is called SQT, or SEAL Qualification Training. And... Uh, when I, we run six classes a year. So every couple months. So uh, between those classes, your, your class is filtering in, uh, you know, maybe for a few weeks before you class up and begin your training with that, with those individuals. So David had already been there for about eight or nine months. He'd already been with two classes through two hell weeks, kept getting injured. And so he got, when people get injured, they can get rolled back. Uh, right. That's our term. So once that injury heals, you're given the green light to train again, you'll pick up with whatever class, you know, is comfortable. Right. And so that was our class, 235. And uh, he and I were in the same boat crew in those early days, same boat crew in Hell Week. And then we both, uh, we graduated, obviously, and then went to SEAL Team 5 together as well. Now, it was pretty cool that he forwarded your book, you forwarded him in the book, and just what an honor to have the guy at his like you said, he's just like, just vision focus. And when he wants, sets his mind on something, he just goes after it. it just, yeah. I mean, where, who do you think he learned that from? Or come on. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. No, he's no, he's he's a he's a fascinating individual. And one of the things that I studied and kind of touch on in the book is, you know, that there's such a wide, vast body of research on where does resilience come from? Where does grit come from? Mental fortitude. You know, do you have to come from a background of extreme adversity to be a more gritty, resilient person? You know, my answer is essentially no, you don't. Um, you know, you typically people will develop a certain level of mental fortitude by having to overcome adversity. Like David's background is vastly different than mine, uh, which is kind of a neat dichotomy uh, of, of this book because, you know, he did grow up with that. He's very transparent about obviously, you know, childhood obesity, racism, a physically and emotionally abusive household, learning disabilities. These are, and this was his life growing up and uh, until he started to make some choices and there were some ups and downs. And then, uh, you know, in my opinion, the, the SEAL teams really changed his life uh, in a good way. And then he's been on this radical journey of constant transformation ever since. Um, and it, there's no end in sight. <laughs> there's no, there's no, uh, there's no end zone for him. No end it's zone just, for him. Yeah. And, and so, whereas I grew up very differently. I grew up in right. Dallas in an upper middle class family. And, you know, I went to private school my whole life. But at the same time, you know, uh, oftentimes those backgrounds don't necessarily matter. What's fascinating as a social experiment about the SEAL training program is that it's a level playing field. You can have Olympic athletes, you can have people like David, people like me, people in the middle. Uh, and, and people, interestingly, people always say, well, could you, you know, when you begin, like you could probably, you could probably pick out at least most of the people that are going to make it. And the answer is you can absolutely not. Not even <laughs> close. You would be you would be dead wrong if you're like pick thirty people out of this two hundred who are going to be at the end. You right. probably you probably missed the mark by about ninety percent. Yeah, when I first saw, saw the title of your book, "Embrace the Suck," I immediately my mind went back to boot camp in the Marine Corps. Yeah, it, it just sucked. <laughs> there was nothing fun, <laughs> enjoyable about it. But buzz training by far was more excruciating than what I went through in Marine Corps boot camp. But I just remember there was never anything fun. It was just, it was painful. It just I didn't enjoy it. But I told my dad, either I graduate or I'm coming back in a box to bury me. <laughs> or two ways. That's it. Yeah. And that's just kind of the mindset you had to have to make it through your buds, I'm sure, just to get through that cycle of torture, pain, yeah. misery. Yeah, and it, 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 it's interesting. We've, we've, the Naval Special Warfare community has invested you know, millions of dollars, and we've done years of you know, market research, for lack of a better phrase, to identify the, the cognitive, emotional, physical, uh, psychological attributes of students that are more likely to um, successfully navigate this program, which is arguably the most, if not one of the most challenging uh, in existence. And, you know, think about it, let's think about it as a sales funnel. You know, we need better leads at the top of the funnel so we can close more deals, uh, i.e. graduate more students, because uh, we would like to grow the ranks and numbers of the, the SEAL community. And, uh, the narrative that the data paints is not what you might typically imagine around academic excellence and physical prowess and, you know, bohemists that like to kick ass and take names. It, um, you get some of that, of course, but it, it really comes down to the less measurable data points of, of grit, mental fortitude, and most importantly, what we discovered is a deep passion and emotional connection to the idea of service and not just service in the military, but in this regard, service as a special operator or as a SEAL. And so it, just like if you think any goal you, pers you pursue in your career or your uh, hobby or per your personal life, 
any goal worth pursuing is going to have some adversity and some a little bit of pain and suffering associated with it. If not, like I joke in the book, it wasn't that great of a goal in the first place. <laughs> you should set your sights higher. Um, but uh, just like you know, entrepreneurship or pursuing your career in business or whatever you know, path you take as a professional or in building great relationships or being a great spouse or husband or mom or parent, none of those things are easy, but they're wildly rewarding because, because they are hard and because they, they have challenges associated with them. And so the students that have that deep emotional connection to the idea of service or uh, which again is kind of hard to measure, but those are the ones that will see it through because they can continue to maintain uh, a mental and emotional focus on that ultimate vision, as opposed to getting distracted by the, the, the immediate pain and the suffering that they're going through or the, the instructor saying, hey, Brent, you know, you're the worst student to ever come through here. You're too big, you're too small, you're too fat, you're too slow, too skinny, you know, whatever. You're, uh, you're not gonna be, you, you're not feel material. And they say that to you like every day. <laughs> it's, it's not your typical HR rewards and recognition system that we have in, our, in the corporate world. Um, and students fall for that. They, they let the internal and external voices uh, drive them down the path towards giving up. And you know, an hour or two later, when they're warm and dry, they feel that piercing sting of a rat. And um, students who learn how to compartmentalize in a healthy way, I mean, uh, right. the ones right. they can see through. So. Now, you have, you have an interesting track and in how you went into the Navy and joined the buzz because you were very smart. You, you're a financial I analyst. I wouldn't go too far. I wouldn't go too far with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am the son of a Marine, so. <laughs> we, have yes. our, we have our guests ready, so I'm going to let them in. Welcome in. We got our first guest. I'm going to let them all in. Okay, go for it. All right. Lucas is coming from Ontic. The Lucas. Hey there. Lucas, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How you doing, Mark? Great. Happy to have you join us. How are things in Texas? Not bad. No complaints here in Austin, Texas, man. But uh, we've got it easy, you know. It's 70 <laughs> degrees and uh, sunny in uh, December 21st. Not too bad. So, so you're su you're suffering like we are in San Diego, where it's sunny and seventy degrees in December. <laughs> uh, Brent, you your your types are the only I can't really talk to and brag about the weather, man. It's just not fair, right? So, <laughs> well, it's funny as as you may know, I'm from Texas. I'm from Dallas, but I literally just got off another podcast. If you've heard of the Drinking Bros podcast, they're based there in Austin. Yeah. Really, really fun and crude individuals. <laughs> is that the uh, caliber of podcast we have going today as well? <laughs> I think we'll take it a little bit different direction today than yeah. that. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, but thanks yeah, for having yeah. me, guys. Pleasure to be here. You're welcome. Thanks for coming awesome. on. You bet. Yeah. We're just chatting about military days and a Navy SEAL days, my Marine Corps boot camp days. And, you know, my pains aren't as severe as going through buzz training, but, uh, yeah, Brent's just sharing, you know, his wealth of knowledge and all that. So, yeah, I'm sure you have a question for Brent, and uh, what would that be? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Well, Brent, really excited uh, about the book um, and about Embrace the Suck. And uh, as a CEO of a fast-growing startup uh, myself here, you know, we're actively building a company, and we're hiring like crazy. And I was curious how you recommended leaders go about identifying individuals 
who possess that, you know, this resiliency characteristic you talk about, right? Challenge, commitment, control, because um, those yeah. are really key, right? I know it's not necessarily in, you know, combat scenarios, but hey, we go hand to hand all day long, right? As a sales organization and uh, taking care of clients. And so those characteristics are still really important. So wonder if you had any tips on how you identify people who have those. Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, I kind of dive heavily into that in my first book, Taking Point, which is about organizational transformation, leading change. You know, I lean heavily into culture and employee engagement strategies. And and the the, the answer to your question, as you know, is, is not an easy one because a lot of the attributes that we look for in high performers, potential high performers, uh, people who could eventually be groomed into rising stars or even you know, hit the ground running as potential rising stars in an organization, especially in the complexity of a fast growing organization like yours, uh, is uh, it, it's difficult to interview for that. Uh, you know, we've, <laughs> I know in my first two companies, they were more on the technology side. And, uh, and a lot of what we did was try, I really tried to, I didn't do this at first, but uh, I, my transition out of the SEAL teams was very rapid. My, my transition plan was to have zero downtime. So I took my GMAT for grad school, like before my last combat deployment. Then I got out, I got home, and then two weeks later, I was out of the Navy. And then one week later, I started my MBA program. <laughs> and then I met my first business partner in graduate school, a very cliche story. but uh, And then we started our first company and raised, raised money and, and hit the ground running. And you realize you go, as you know, from from guy with a great you know business idea or a founder or a good business plan, you raise the capital to oh my gosh, I'm a leader. I'm meant to inspire. I have to emotionally connect these people to the journey and the vision of what we're trying to accomplish. I have to identify people that will connect to the culture I'm trying to build and people who will connect with, you know, the product or service we're trying to put in front of great clients. And we don't always get it right, do we? <laughs> it's, we, we tend to initially hire for subject matter expertise or, um, you know, or other types of uh, attributes that seem to fit with the organization or especially you know, what we're trying to accomplish. And then, you know, you're, you're growing rapidly, you're a sales organization, you have expectations from, you know, whether it's shareholders or a board or, you know, other people that expect to see rapid growth. It creates a, an additional multi-layer burden of command, so to speak, of trying to identify the, the people that you want to bring into it. People often ask me, like, what would you do differently, you know, going back to those days? I, one, I would have more rapidly drawn on the, the leadership and culture principles that forge, you know, elite special operations units and, and, and ideated more on that as far as how can I build a right foundation now, you know, the right defined culture, a more clearly defined set of core values, supporting behaviors, accountability mechanisms, and a framework for behavioral norms, not just the operating models and all that other stuff that has to be in place, but the behavioral norms that we expect of ourselves, of course, and others to create from the beginning, like a culture of accountability and and discipline and obviously, you know, fun and all that other stuff. But, you know, research and not just my, my experience shows that an organization or a team with higher levels of accountability, higher levels of discipline, they have higher morale, much higher employee engagement, much higher levels of import, uh, you know, performance and therefore higher levels of retention. So I'm going up this service profit chain and therefore happier customers and greater profitability. Um, so trying to really make a list of, you know, further down the chain after I made a ton of costly mistakes and hired all the wrong people, I went back to the drawing board <laughs> and to say, okay, maybe we should actually I put a task force together. I put many task forces together for many different things, but this was to say, you know, not just who we are as an organization, but who, who do we want to be 
a few years from now. So not just hiring for the current level of performance we need now, but we need to hire for the current level of performance we need three years from now. Let's not say five years because that doesn't really exist anymore, but uh, the battlefield will look differently then. But, um, and we got better at um, the strategies behind how we interviewed for the right types of attributes, not just subject matter expertise. That almost always led me down the wrong path when I only, we only interviewed for that. But um, shared values, obviously there's, you know, there's different strategies on how you can interview and, and understand people's personas better and their, their you know, cognitive and sort of, uh, you know, things they like to do outside of work to see how well of a fit they're going to be. But then also, you know, one thing you know, I, I used to get wrong and now we teach our clients how to do it properly just because I've learned the wrong way is, you know, better onboarding, you know, better training from the beginning, investing in those people's development from the beginning. Uh, and not just saying, well, we should probably carve out some budget or time for that, but saying that's got to be part of your strategy uh, is mm-hmm. developing people. And the more we develop them, not only are they going to perform better, they're going to stay longer, they're going to be happier. Uh, so we won't always get it perfect from the beginning of who we bring into the organization, but paying attention, you know, to who those people are and how they're going to develop and how they're interacting with their colleagues. And are they collaborative? Do they work cross-functionally? Do they look out for the person to the left and right? You know, in the early stages of SEAL training, we weigh heavily uh, on the students and whether we keep or drop on peer reviews, actually. Uh, it's interesting, you wouldn't think that, but we do anonymous peer reviews every week in the early stages of us. So imagine doing an anonymous 360 every Friday, where the, if the stakes are so high, you lose your job. If you didn't score well, you can imagine the type of pressure that puts on the, the team. But it's called the top five, bottom five. So basically, it's a very simple formula. We rank. We rank who we think that it's anonymous, who we think the top five performers are, and who we think the bottom five, and why. And they weigh that data heavily against what the instructors have and the, the data they're keeping. And it's all behavioral. It's not because they're not the best shooter or the fastest runner or swimmer uh, or the best performer in a different skill set. It's, you know, they lack team ability. They're in it for themselves. They have ego. They don't communicate well. You know, all the typical things that we need in a high-performing organization. So, you know, we don't always... It's not always perfect, but uh, the more we pay attention and have managers that pay attention, the over time we, we can keep people longer and make fewer poor hires. <laughs> Love it, man. Thanks, yeah. Brett. Super helpful. Awesome. Thanks, Lucas. Great hey, question, Lucas. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. Hey, you too. Our brother. <laughs> See you soon. <laughs> and we have John from U.S. Bank joining us. Hey, John. Yeah. Can you hear me okay, Mark? I got you loud and clear, sir. Great. Well, How are you, sir? Yeah, really good, Brent. Thank you for, for doing this. And uh, Mark, uh, you know, honored to be to be back and be a part of this. And, you know, Brent, I just want to start by saying thank you for your service to our country. Thank really you. appreciate everything you do and, and appreciate everything that the women and men in uniform do day in, day out. So, uh, thank you. You know, yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, I, I think for me, you know, one of the big uh, – questions or ch- challenges we're facing is that uh, our business process, our models are uh, changing. They're changing to the, the environment around us. They're changing as we become a much more technological business than maybe a brick and mortar or a classic sort of traditional one, right? And along with that, the security programs that are designed to protect and support those business lines, they also have to change. They have to evolve. They have to modernize. My question, I'd love to get some thoughts from you on how do you uh, 
galvanize your team around the idea that, okay, we have to evolve. We have to change. We may have been doing something for many, many years successfully, but the way the company is asking us to protect and support them tomorrow is going to look different than, uh, than today. How do you galvanize the team, motivate the team around uh, working through that transition or that change? And then as that transition or change perhaps takes weeks or months or even years, how do you continue to motivate and inspire the team uh, around believing in, you know, kind of where you're trying to head? So that really would, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question because it, it really is the fa- it's the foundation of my my first book, which is a best selling book on uh, on leading through change. It's called Taking Point: A Navy SEAL's Ten Failsafe Principles for Leading Through Change. Basically, a modern take on change management. Um, I don't like the term change management. I like the term change leadership because we need to lead these people and, like you said, to galvanize them and emotionally connect them to what is the new normal. And um, I remember going through grad school, coming out of the SEAL teams, retraining my brain and mindset towards business. I was reading every book I could possibly find from Jim Collins to Marshall Goldsmith. And one of my favorite books is what got you here won't get you there. And that's a a great and simple narrative to help teams understand that the, you know, the systems, the processes, the standard operating procedures and best practices, and even the mindset, behavior and culture that takes an organization to one level of existence and performance and growth typically aren't the same or are almost never always the same uh, before getting over those inevitable growth barriers. And I'm sure that you know, being the organization that you, that, that you guys are, uh, you guys were already venturing down the path of transformation and digital transformation and technological innovation. And then boom, COVID hits. And you're like, okay, now we got to really speed this up, you know, because a change initiative like what many organizations, especially large matrix organizations, uh, you know, like you know, a bank, um, these change initiatives are wildly complex. They take years usually uh, to enact Um, and and more so not just about, you know, enacting the the, implementing of of new technology, but the buy-in and the communication strategies of what we're doing, why we're changing. And the fact that people are going to probably have a little bit more work to do as they transition from the old way of doing things to the new way of doing things. And that's why organizations, I mean, the data keeps coming back the same. It's, you know, from McKinsey to Deloitte to, you know, all the consulting firms over the past, you know, decade, I mean, it's literally about 70% of organizational change or transformation initiatives. I won't say fail, but definitely significantly fall short of meeting their intended objective because of a lot of what I talk about in the book, because of a lack of uh, an initial communication strategy. And we say, oh, well, oh, we communicated it because we put it out in this, this notice and we talked about it in the company-wide communication that ain't going to cut it. <laughs> it, has to, it has to cascade down constantly throughout the entire organization to get people to understand why we're doing things the new way and what the positive outcomes are going to be. And then celebrating quick wins and storytelling around the progress towards these initiatives. Uh, that's where we, and I, I'm guilty of this many times over in my previous companies where you know, we just assume we communicated it well. We assume we communicated the why uh, so that people can connect to it and understand uh, what the vision of the positive outcome is going to be so they can accept a little bit of that initial pain and anxiety of the change. And we're wildly wrong <laughs> because we didn't communicate it enough or in the proper way or through both formal and informal channels. And so we make these assumptions. We don't storytell. We don't celebrate enough of the quick wins. Or if we do, we do it in this business unit or this area over here or this small team here. We don't share these stories of progress 
even if there's like a massive amount of progress in an organization towards um, whatever the, you know, the innovation or the change initiative is, nobody knows about it. So what do they assume? Well, they assume either there's no progress or here we go again. You know, I heard this two years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago, whether it's this organization or another that leadership puts out this new initiative, we're going to make this big change and then nobody knows anything about it. And as it trickles down from the top to the, to the middle, we have some data on this that we show our clients is pretty interesting. <laughs> By the third tier down or fourth tier down, people will tell you a totally different narrative about the what, the why, the when, the who, and what we're trying to accomplish. So it, uh, you know, it, it goes into a much better internal communication strategy, sometimes external, and really coaching and mentoring and teaching managers, even in sort of more of the middle level, on how to engage their teams in, in participation. Uh, one of the chapters in my first book was about you know, engagement and participation. When we already have eh, kind of a less than awesome level of employee engagement in well-run organizations, usually it's only about a third, with the rest of the employees being disengaged or actively disengaged, which is just normal in an organization, as you know. Then, then layer in COVID and virtual work environments. You can imagine that really awesome 34% engagement is probably less now. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, we've been working with you know organizations like yours the past nine months on leading and managing remote teams and work from home best practices and how to engage with empathy and greater levels of emotional intelligence and, and try to um, you know bring people into this new sort of virtual culture. But then uh, in an organization like yours, when you're already trying to push somewhat complex uh, initiatives and agenda, which which are necessary then it, it's a, a new layer of, of, of burden. Um, but uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's very complex. And it takes, and these change initiatives, as you know, in a normal environment, usually take longer if they have more significant hard and soft costs than we anticipate. And they require uh, a different skill, uh, a necessary skill of leadership that a lot of us have to continually work out. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Appreciate your time. Hope that Anytime. helped. I'll be in touch and have a good Christmas too. Yeah, you guys too. Best to your families. Yeah, you too. Merry Christmas, John. Merry Christmas. Thanks a lot. I think we have uh, Mickey Whiston coming on next from Spotify. I don't think he's on yet, is he, Chris? He's on. Okay, he's on. All right. We'll see if he's Hey, there. guys. Mickey. Yeah, I'm here, Mark. You Can you hear me? We can hear you, but we can't see you. Oh, that's all right. You're not missing much, man. <laughs> Mickey's uh, hey, Brent, from good New York to meet Spotify. You. Hi, you too, Mickey. How are you doing, man? Good. Well, we're, I'm up here in New York, so it's not 70 degrees and sunny up here. So uh, <laughs> It's dark and with snowy, so uh, we're good. So listen, I, my real quick question is, what's the, the most important leadership trait that you learn while you're with the SEALs and that you're able to use it in your business, in the business, in your business career? Yeah, I think that the most important one, if I had to boil it down to one, uh, would be accountability uh, or, or what we've referred to commonly in the SEAL teams as extreme ownership. So it, it, it really comes down to the fact that if you want to build a culture of accountability and discipline and high performance in any team environment, Obviously, it starts with us, and it shouldn't just be the senior most person in the team thinking that way. Ideally, in a, in a high-performing culture where accountability is the norm, everybody thinks that way. I, I've seen great combat leaders take 
total ownership over catastrophic losses uh, in situations where there was plenty of blame to spread around, for example. And ultimately, it comes down to if I'm the senior leader and we fall short, we miss the mark, then ultimately, you know, what we think of one of the core tenets of great leadership is, you know, we push the the credit of the of the win to the team and we take total and extreme ownership over the loss. And what that does, too, is it shows I'm not going to use the term leading by example because it's just so overused, but you know what I mean? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. through, act, through action, not words, but through action, we show that this is the type of team environment that we want. And, and, and gradually that cascades, that behavioral norm and expectations cascades throughout the team where every single person is literally fighting over the scraps of blame when the team falls short. And then that type of environment, it, it sounds like a, a accountability always has kind of a negative connotation associated with it, but uh, research shows, this is not just my opinion, but a culture of accountability in an organization creates higher levels of engagement, higher levels of morale, higher levels of performance, higher levels of retention, both of employee and customer, and therefore higher levels of profitability. And so uh, we can talk about accountability and we can try to lead with discipline and take ownership over both wins and losses, but there are specific frameworks you can put in place uh, to create uh, more accountability uh, within an organization. They're they're complex, obviously, and they're uh, interworking interworkings within a large organization. But essentially, it comes down to really four things. Uh, one is creating rituals and cultural experiences designed to support specific values, beliefs, and guiding principles and the behavioral expectations we want from our team. But designing all those behavioral expectations and beliefs so that they're aligned with the taking specific actions to achieve a desired outcome. Well, oftentimes leaders will create a great culture, workplace environment, or their core values, or you know, their best practices, but all those things are created in silos. They're not intimately connected to achieve a specific outcome or even loftier goals in the organization thinks they can accomplish. Um, so that's not really all just how you align culture with, uh, with, with business results, but also how you create higher levels of accountability within an organization. So that would be the number one takeaway that I have both failed and succeeded sometimes at <laughs> in my organizations or in coaching other organizations around the world, but um, accountability would have to be number one. Thanks, Brent. You still there, Mickey? Thank you. All right. Thank, thanks, Brent. Thanks, Mark. Uh, can't wait to read the book, Brent. Just ordered it today, man. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, Mickey, and uh, have a great uh, Christmas and holiday, and uh, stay safe out there. Yeah, you too. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you. Merry Christmas, Mickey. All right. Wow. That was a quick panel. That was great information on just organizational business leadership from what your first book covered. Um, I'm looking at my cheat sheet. Let's talk about the new book. (laughs) What's that? Let's talk about the new book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, embrace the suck. Um, you know, the, my favorite little thing you have in embrace the suck is uh, I, I laugh basically when I read off "Get Off Your Ass and Execute." <laughs> That's my probably my favorite little buzzword but, there. And your the, yeah, the the true. last chapter I wanted to kind of tie everything together. So the yeah. the chapters are written to they can stand alone, but the the embrace the suck philosophy and journeys, and then each chapter has a mental model, which is you know, an actionable tool or framework people can use. That's what I found out there in the self-help world that there's a lot of fluff and a lot of great stuff that was okay and fun reads, but 
almost none of it really gives you tools to actually execute in your life to really start making incremental or even massive changes. Um, and so each chapter has a mental model. So while each chapter could technically stand alone, they build on each other. And the last chapter is titled, we're all going to die. So get off your ass and execute. Right. And really it kind of, I was inspired by Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people where the second habit is, you know, think and behave essentially with the end in mind, you know, start managing that list of regrets that you don't want to have. Now we have full power over that. Now the, obviously there's, there's life ambushes that will happen and we'll you know, behave in a certain way or we won't react the way we think we should have. And that's inevitable as long as we're learning from those and applying those lessons learned to changing our behavior and, uh, and, and reacting differently in the, in the future and being in a constant state of improvement, then we're not failing, we're growing and we're learning. But uh, one of the things that I, the point I really make in that chapter is, you know, when, when you think about, I, told, I call them the, your eulogy virtues. When you think about, you know, the day that, you know, you've gone over the great divide, you've gone on to hopefully better things. And, you know, what would you want someone to say about you uh, on, you know, what would they be saying? What, what kind of mark on the world would they communicate? And what things do you really not want to regret um, the day that you're, you know, that you're leaving this world to, to move on? Uh, we can actually have a significant amount of impact on what that list looked like <laughs> but we have to think about it in terms of actively managing it by clearly defining our values and limiting our choices and and, and and distractions in life and making better decisions better planning better execution better debriefing with ourselves so that we can live a more fulfilling life uh, that we design as opposed to just being haphazard and being reactive let's be more proactive about the design and execution of a life that we want and and giving to causes greater than ourselves and you know, nourishing, nurturing meaningful relationships and cutting all the garbage out of our lives that whether that be relationships or the wrong job or the wrong hobbies or the wrong distractions, cut all that stuff out and imagine how much freedom right. <laughs> and flexibility we would have. I mean, this year has been a great example of that. I mean, how many people out there have, reassessed what really matters to them, reassessed their finances, the crap we waste money on, our relationships, you know, our faith, our love, you know, our careers. A lot of people have gone through a pretty impactful journey, I think, that is going to reshape their thinking about what they really want out of life. Yeah. I mean, great point. I saw the same thing, you know, this summer, spring, summer, when COVID was hitting hard, you know, I sat down with Christopher, my producer on the podcast, and I'm usually doing executive protection work, you know, busy seven days a week servicing clients, protecting people or assets. And I'm like, well, we can't do that. And then while the rest of the country, the industry is like, well, 2020 hit us, COVID-19 hit us. So, you know, hell is broken, you know, open and swallowed us all up. I'm like, no, we overcome, we adapt, we change, we pivot. That's what we yeah. do. That's, that's how we get through this. And I, it's almost like I've seen a culture of I give up now throughout the United States. I don't know if I'm seeing that or you're seeing that. I'm hearing that 24 seven in my ear for friends I talk to. Oh, I'm getting unemployment. You give up. I'm like, no, you don't give up. The will of the human spirit keeps driving and going forward. And yeah, the, the thing I, the thing I touch on uh, in the book and actually in the introduction is the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. It's basically, you know, we all experience the, the human emotion of adversity Know, of failure of these life ambushes and something like COVID where nobody predicted this. There was no contingency plan for this. 
No right. business, no business plan had, well, in case of global pandemic, do X, Y, Z. No family plan had in case of COVID pandemic, do X, Y, Z. But it required uh, you know, a, an immediacy when it comes to taking stock of the current situation on the battlefield. And there's a difference between people who get trapped in sort of that causal thinking, the analysis paralysis of why me, why now, why this? And they kind of kind of stuck in that mindset and, and ruminating about you know, the situation that they're in and thinking about all the things that 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 they can't impact and dwelling on the things that are outside of their control. Whereas people that think and act with a little bit higher levels of resilience move more quickly from that. We all get stuck in that for a minute, but how long do we get stuck in that? Move more quickly from that causal thinking to action-oriented execution. Take stock of the moment. You know this from your you know, careers in Marine, take stock of the moment, look at the battlefield around you, what resources do I have, what threats and blockages still stand in the way, let's develop a plan, we can think of some contingencies, let's put those in there too, some lessons learned, and then we got to keep moving forward, otherwise we'll get stuck in the battlefield and we'll get annihilated, we've got to keep moving, and uh, and I've seen a lot of that, I've seen a lot of that on both sides, obviously, with you know, just people in general and watching the news and reading and doing research and with the clients we work with and the, the individuals or families or companies and people out there in their careers who are moving more rapidly towards adaptation and reinvention, you know, and this is, this goes back, you know, since the beginning, people who have extreme experienced extreme adversity or physical and emotional pain and suffering oftentimes are come out of it happier. Uh, they have a greater perspective. They see the world through a different lens. They're more mature, uh, they're emotionally more mature, uh, and they're better people <laughs> in general, to put it, in a, to put it in, a, in a simple term. Right. What's your advice, Brent, to the guys, especially our military families or our veterans that are out of the service, of course, and they're dealing with depression, maybe some suicide issues, maybe just uh, substance abuse stuff because they're trying to get through the holidays. What is your advice to those, those folks struggling with that? Yeah, interestingly, obviously a lot of, you know, everyone is experiencing certain levels of frustration and social isolation, but um, it's a different level of complexity when we're talking about our, our veterans trans- transitioning out who already have, you know, the burden of service. Many of many of them, of course, um, you know, I've had friends come back from deployments where they came back from deployment for seven months. They got delayed coming back, of course, and then they went from coming home to friends and family to immediately being in quarantine. <laughs> so you can imagine the extreme frustration. It's, as you know, like those, those last couple months of deployment, like all you think about is going home and what you're going to do and who you're going to see and, and all that. And then, then you get delayed for a week or two weeks. So your plane doesn't show up and then it's a month. And then a global pandemic comes and hits and you're delayed two months. Then you get home and go into, into quarantine. Uh, and we're already talking about our environment where we're losing 20 to 22 veterans a day to suicide. Wow. So sad. Uh, having been at having been at war for for 20 years, uh, the veteran suicide rate is higher than it's ever been in the history of the United States military. And so, you know, it really comes down to, um, which again, COVID doesn't help. But you know, humans aren't meant to suffer in isolation. We're meant to suffer in relationship with others, Absolutely. both you know, physically, you know, mentally, and emotionally. And so. Uh, you know, we've, I think we've started to do a pretty good job in the ranks of the military to combat the stigma of PTSD and the stigma of, well, I shouldn't talk about that or I, I, you know, I don't need therapy. 
I've seen a lot, especially in the special operations community, where guys are guys are not just opening up to that, but they're evangelizing the need for help and helping each other. And they're actively talking about it in social media. They're creating companies and nonprofits and you know CBD brands uh, to help veterans not go down that path of, of, of self-medication when it comes to alcohol and drugs and the things that can so wildly exacerbate the depression that people just give up and that's when they end things. But trying to engage in more wellness activities, uh, getting outside, getting back into fitness and also uh, altruism, giving to causes greater than yourself and helping other veterans uh, get into nonprofit work or helping and mentoring others. You know, I've got so many friends and I've done this myself where you know, why not, uh, unless, unless I spend so much time dwelling in my own misery, uh, how might get off my ass and go help some other people. <laughs> so we, start, we start making it about other people. Right. We start, we start dwelling on the stuff that we just continually dwell on. And we realize every single time somebody's got it a lot worse than you. Absolutely. So true. That's why I try to tell my, you know, buddies that reach out to me because of my podcast say, Hey, what's your suggestions? How do I find work? And I can't find work. What do I do? A lot of them are playing video games, Call of Duty. They're trying to go pro or something. And I'm like, Hey, just get outside, exercise, move your body, you know, go hit the beach, go get some sun. Just yeah. I think what it is, is killing them. Like you said, relationships. I'm not having relational type of relationships because everybody's isolated and it's yeah. really killing the psyche. Yeah, absolutely. But I ultimately, and you know, this is just how I think, and you just said it, but I think Sure. You know, wellness and fitness activities are one of the best ways to, and that's just the changes, the chemical balance in our brains. I mean, right. it's almost impossible to feel deep depression and anxiety after running five miles, <laughs> even if it's a short, even if it's a short window <laughs> of time, but because of, you know, the way our chemical reaction, in our brains happen. And if we get into that, I've got, you know, I've got a good buddy here in, in Rancho Santa Fe that he was an army ranger officer, you know, phenomenal guy. I uh, grew up here, you know, blown up in an IED attack. The, he was the officer, the leader, and the only person who survived. So you, you can imagine beyond just the trauma and the TBI that occurred from that, the survivor's guilt, being the leader and being the only survivor. One of the things he's done is he started, you know, veteran nonprofits, and he decided to become an ultra marathon runner like David wow. Goggins. And so he does these 100 to 150 mile races, and it's it's great for to see how he's transformed uh, by <laughs> physically abusing himself. <laughs> That's abuse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Wow. So where are you at in your career? I'm just kind of curious. I know you do business consulting for large corporations and whatnot. <laughs> are you going to going into more motivational, continue that path? What's your trajectory of sure. your career in the next 10, five to 10 years? With That's actually, that's actually where it began. My first two companies more, technology focus, I, I found not necessarily a passion for those industries, but a passion for building organizations. And so uh, after writing Taking Point, uh, I, I did that strategically to build a, a business organization around many of the principles in that book and the, and the philosophies of organizational transformation. So we're, we're, you know, we're staying the course, we're continuing to build the, build the company, build the organization. Obviously the past nine months have stalled certain uh, growth initiatives. Our 2020 projections got, uh, Bitch slapped a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I wonder how that happened. A couple times over. <laughs> but, uh, you know, re, uh, you know, reworking those numbers uh, helps sure. us think a little, bit, a little bit more realistically. But, you know, just like everyone else, we've gone through digital transformation. We've pivoted. Uh, we've taken everything from whether it's just a simple thing of doing motivational keynote speaking to half-day workshops to 
multi-year organizational development consulting where we're doing predominantly virtually when we can. And uh, everybody's used to it now. So it was uncomfortable at first, but because people are so used to that type of platform, um, it's you get high levels of engagement. It still works. You can still show measurable returns. So we're just staying the course and we've got a lot of really phenomenal clients and we're excited about you know where we're headed. Uh, uh, I'm going to think, I, I think I'm going to, take a break from writing books for a while. Uh, I've written two now and <laughs> it's a, it's a two year journey for each one. So I think I'm going to take a little hiatus on that and focus on, you know, well, writers, uh, burnout. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just, <laughs> until I have something else to say, I'm just going to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> Change it up a little bit. How much did it take you? Is it like a two year process, a couple hours a day writing a, a book itself? Or I know you do a lot of research and stuff in your st- materials. Best practice is usually it's about a two-year process from the day you sort of sign, you know, with a with a publisher. Uh, I've always gone more of the traditional route where I have a literary agent uh, based in Manhattan. Uh, he partners with me on the book proposal, which is more of a marketing piece than than a synopsis. It'll be about what this book is all about, why this book, why now, sort of a description of each chapter, that type of thing. But really, more so, it's you're selling what the book is, not really writing the book. And so then your literary agent, hopefully, a guy that I'm blessed with a really awesome agent, um, he takes that book to all the big publishers. Uh, I was with Simon & Schuster for the first one. Uh, went with uh, Hashit Books, Hashit Book Group this time, uh, also based in Manhattan. They're global. But, um, and then, uh, then you sign, and then you're, it's really up to the author <laughs> to manage your own time in, in writing the book. I have a great editor, uh, my team at Hashit. Use ghostwriters, and uh, and so now I will. It's interesting because when I signed the the deal in 2019, like we were just on fire, like growing. I was traveling all over the place, and I didn't really start writing the book till, <laughs> until like towards the end of 2019 because I just literally I was putting pieces here and there, but I just couldn't even find the time. Um, but you know, growing the business and hiring new people and bringing on new clients. And, uh, and then I started writing it and then COVID hit. And so in a way, at first I was like, well, maybe this is a good thing. So actually it's taken, I'm not having to write a book on a plane like I did the last one or in a hotel room. So um, it, it did actually give me time to take a beat and pause and focus, like I said, on things that were in my control, which was finishing the book, which I, I had to do. It was under contract to do so. Um, but then there was also some complexity there of, okay, well, now we also have to focus on massively transforming our business to survive and thrive in this new environment. So uh, again, like everything else, it was some, some 2020 chaos, but we got it done. And uh, it's, uh, it's either the end or the beginning of that journey. I, I don't know which right. one, or both. <laughs> now, do you still enjoy the business side of business, like the numbers and all that? So you like, you like the numbers part of business and you, you flip several businesses and very successful and, all that. Yeah, it's not, I'm not the kind of, you know, CEO who, I know a lot of CEOs who are so numbers focused, they just live in the numbers and they just, you know, <laughs> always analyzing and moving things around. And, um, you know, I'll, you know, I meet my, with my CFO on a regular basis and we talk about the basic stuff. This year is, again, it's been, uh, it's been a little more simple because, you know, business slowed and everybody's kind of taking a beat to see what's going to happen. Um, but, uh, no, but yeah, both internally and then also with our clients, you know, I think, you know, with a finance mind, I want to make sure that, for example, anything we do with our clients has a measurable financial return for them, whether that's through employee retention or customer retention through higher levels of performance quality uh, to make sure that they see the, 
the financial benefit of sustainability and profitability through what we do. So I think that way, but I'm not the kind of person who, you know, <laughs> sifts through <laughs> spreadsheets and pivot tables with a glass of wine every night. <laughs> there you go. I look at a spreadsheet and I'm like, help. <laughs> I did not yeah. major in mathematics. <laughs> No, that's yeah. I, I did major in finance, but it, it was yeah. a painful. It was a painful journey. <laughs> yeah, being a being a Navy SEAL and as active as you, yeah, I can see the contradiction there. It's just uh, <laughs> enjoying the the thrill and the physical push and all that. Yeah, I, I remember reading in your book too the how how painful you had your legs was swelling, your arm was all blown up, and just trying to get through that end of that that course of that training. It just just that pain just the mental mindset you had to switch just to get through it. Yeah. And, and a lot of guys go through it. I mean, you, you know, of that, you know, 16 month pipeline or so, it changes a little bit right and left, you know, depending on who's in charge and how we've evolved. But, you know, that first six months of the training pipeline is buds or basic underwater demolition seal. And what you see on TV, movies, documentaries, but the first, really the first five weeks are where they lead the entire class. Out. You'll get some people filtering in who are rollbacks from injuries or, um, you know, from other areas, but really what you come out of hell week with is what you're basically going to be the foundation that you're going to graduate with. And so of that long, long pipeline, it's really by week five that uh, you, you can see who's going to, to last. And I, I just see, yeah, I had a, I had a, and everybody goes into hell week, either sick, injured or both. <laughs> and then we, we were a winter hell week. So people might think, oh, winter in San Diego, whatever, but the water temps in the Pacific are in the fifties and they keep you in the water all the time. And yeah. so when you're, you know, wet, sandy, freezing, second stage hypothermic, you're injured, uh, you're covered in scabs and so sw swollen, you look like a tree trunk. It's yeah, there's some, definitely some purposeful suffering going on there. But, you know, I've seen guys who have, you know, a guy in my boat group had two broken shins, but he just kept his mouth shut at med checks because he didn't want to get rolled back. And uh, obviously after hell week, he couldn't walk, so he had to roll him back. <laughs> if you if you can make it past Wednesday, they'll roll you forward, so you don't have to do hell week again. Oh. But let, let's say like midday Wednesday, and you're injured, and you get you get you have to get medically dropped or rolled. You got to start from day one, not just hell week, but from the very beginning. So, um, but yeah, it's 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 fascinating to see the level of mental fortitude. And going back to what we talked about, you know, it's not just because they're like tough guys; it's because they have such a passion and emotional connection the idea of completing training and becoming a SEAL. And that's what helps push them through the most physically and emotionally painful times. Achieving that honor, just the honor itself. Well, the, the, the honor and more so the, you know, the, the humble privilege of being right. able to, to do that. But, and then, you know, guys get their try to become a SEAL and they, you know, realize quickly that that's a, a life of much greater sacrifice than they had experienced in training. Absolutely. Hey, what are your thoughts on the way uh, corporations communicate these days? You have email, you got text messaging, and <laughs> now Zoom. What's the most effective and ineffective ways of communicating you've seen with your clients? It's, it's a good question and timely because a lot of organizations are, one, we're already bad at this. Uh, <laughs> whether it's under-communicating, over-communicating, everybody using different channels for different reasons, no no meeting etiquette whatsoever, no communication etiquette or, or best practices whatsoever, um, or at least nothing that's followed. One of the things that we've been working on, uh, it's easy to put it in the context of this current environment, is uh, general meeting and communication etiquette now that we're in a virtual environment. 
So meaning like not everything has to be a Zoom meeting. You know, we found that people are now working longer hours than they were before because they don't have the commute. They don't have the other sort of social activity in the office or going out to lunch or, you know, leaving a little early for happy hour or whatever that, you know, whatever it might be They're You know, we're strapping in at 7 a.m. And next thing you know, it's 7 p.m. And you like, oh, crap, I didn't eat lunch or I didn't take a break. Um, and then people are stacking you know, these meetings, especially Zoom meetings, everybody now thinks that everything has to be a video conference, which it's good. And it's good for the um, combating some of that social isolation so we can see each other. And that's that's a positive. We always encourage that. But but again, going back to general meeting etiquette, we're stacking back to back to back to back to back. They're already feeling stress, anxiety and uncertainty. And then we have so many meetings, we're not really actually getting anything done <laughs> it's, unless it's a working meeting that's very, very well run. People come prepared. They don't have time to come prepared uh, and they don't have time to take the notes and put the accountabilities in place in their calendar, in their calendar, what they need to do based on that other meeting. Cause they got to get off that meeting and right up to the next meeting. Um, so what we do is working with uh, clients on identifying a framework for what constitutes a zoom meeting, for example, what can be done through Gchat? What should be what should live in email? What can be a text to your point or a phone call? You know, that could take two seconds as opposed to, oh crap, well, I gotta talk to Mark about that situation. So I need to find some time for a Zoom call sometime this week. Well, that's not happening until Thursday. Well, no, just pick the damn phone up and take two seconds to talk about it. Shoot him a text. You know, <laughs> you might get the answer within 30 seconds and then you move on. Right. Um, so creating best practices around that. Uh, that everybody understands that are documented is the best way to do that. So what should live in each of those you know, verticals? It's not always going to be perfect. It'll be messy. But um, but when we don't even attempt to do that, people are already just inundated with way too much communication. Uh, and it's, and it's, and there's too many, too many meetings now, or that was already, that was already a problem. <laughs> death by meetings. And now it's death by meetings <laughs> tenfold. <laughs> It's communication overload by far seems that way. And you have Zoom on top of your text messaging and phone calls and conference calls. It's just gone crazy. Well, and the, the dichotomy of it is we, we do need to be over communicating now, especially as leaders and managers. Right. Because of connecting people to what we're trying to do and the new ways of doing things and the new procedures. But it can't be layering on more communication. It's just better use of the time we already have. Exactly. Great. Great point. And thanks for just sharing your time with the sprint. Um, I got the cue from the producer to not waste too much more of your time. <laughs> and uh, I want to put a plug in for Embrace the Suck with Brent Gleason. It's coming out tomorrow. You can go to his website and order it. And uh, people are buying it like crazy, like hotcakes. And uh, let's put them in the uh, New York Times bestseller list. There we go. <laughs> Get them cranking up there with the numbers. But uh, thanks for your time, Brent. I want to wish you Merry Christmas to you and your family and your team out there in San Diego. And uh, yeah, it's an honor to have you on and uh, uh, get this panel done. And I know there's some inquisitive people out there in the business world going, what the heck's going to happen in 2021? And I'm sure you'll be reaching out to everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be more of the same, really. <laughs> Pretty much the same. No, but Mark, thanks so much for having me. It was an honor to be on. I uh, hope you and your family have a great Christmas and holiday. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk very soon. All right. Appreciate it, sir. Thanks. Thanks, brother.